Listen to this story. A man was wheeling himself frantically down the hall of the hospital in his wheelchair just before his operation. A nurse stopped him and asked, what's the matter? He said, I heard the other nurse say, it's a very simple operation, don't worry, I'm sure it will be all right. Well, she was just trying to comfort you, sir, what are you so frightened about? The man replied, she wasn't talking to me, she was talking to the doctor. <laughs> this morning, I want to address a topic that each one of us can relate to. In fact, our topic this morning is a universal human need that results from living in a broken, fallen world. And I was reminded of that as I watched a TV commercial just a few nights ago. It was a new product from a pharmaceutical company. There's so many drug ads on television. But this one was telling you that if you use this drug, it essentially could make your life wonderful. And then just before the <clears throat> end of the commercial, <clears throat> in the last five seconds, you get this whole litany of side effects, some of which are really serious and even life-threatening. Comedian Steve Martin one time did a parody on one of these commercials where he read the label on the medication and it said, dosage, take two tablets every six hours for joint pain. Side effects, this drug may cause joint pain. <laughs> you know, it occurred to me as I was watching that commercial that maybe life should come with a disclaimer, you know, a list of side effects. And when children are born, there's this little tag attached to their umbilical cord. And on one side, it tells you how wonderful life can be. And you flip it over, and in really small print, it says this. Life may result in pain, disappointment, heartache, illness, injury, crime, natural disaster. And the list could go on and on. The fact is that Jesus told us that life in this world would not be a walk in the park. Look at these words that Jesus shared with his disciples words that apply to us as well. He said this, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, this is not a newsflash. We all know there's trouble in this world. But the inevitable question is, why? And students that are here this morning, I hope the message today will really help you think about and navigate through some of these really important questions. And I was thinking about students in particular because there was a poll that was done by George Barna, a national poll, and he asked people this, if you could ask God one question and you knew that God would answer you, what question would you ask? And the number one question was this, why is there so much suffering in the world? And, and let me say this as well, for most people, suffering is not an academic question. It's not just a theological idea to be discussed or debated on Sunday morning. This is real. It's where we live. And I know as I look out this morning that so many of you have gone through some significant pain and suffering and even tragedy in your lives. You know what it's like to see somebody you love struggle. You know what it's like to get the bad news from the doctor. You know what it's like to wake up in the middle of the night and not be able to go back to sleep and to get up exhausted and try to put one foot in front of the other and just make it through the day. Today we're continuing our series called How Big Is Your God? And here's the title this morning of the message, God's Comfort is Bigger Than My Pain. God's Comfort is Bigger Than My Pain. And as we talk about this topic, there are two foundational principles that I want to begin with. And you might think of it this way, when you're really hurting, when life is really painful, it's like trying to navigate through a fog. Isn't that true? And these two principles are like points of light that can help us find our way. And here is that first point of light. It's actually the first statement on your outline. God is not the author of evil and suffering. God is not the author of evil and suffering. 
One of the places in the Bible that we find this idea is in the book of Job. And if you've got one of the brown Bibles this morning, that's on page 402. The book of Job is very dramatic. In fact, it reads like a play. And as the play opens, there are actually two stages. There's a lower stage on planet Earth, and that's where we find Job and his friends and his family. And then there's a secondary stage, and this is up in heaven. And this is where you, you find God and Satan and the angels. And the way the play works is the people on the stage in heaven can see what's happening on the stage here on Earth, but that's not true of the people on Earth. They have no idea what's taking place above them in heaven. Now, here's what's really fascinating. When you read the book of Job, you're actually watching the drama unfold on both stages at the same time. You have what's called in drama an omniscient point of view. You're seeing everything happen. Now, as you begin this drama in chapter 1, we see what's happening on the upper stage. This takes place in heaven. It's actually a conversation between God and Satan. And this is what we read in verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? And you can just imagine that God is there, they're looking down on the earth, and it's almost like God is you know, pulling apart the curtains of heaven and saying, hey, angels, hey, come over here. Satan, come over here. Have you seen this guy, Job? Have you seen my servant, Job? There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And you can almost see the smile on God's face. He is just so proud of his servant, Job. But notice how it continues. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But, God, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Here's God's response. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands. But, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, many of you know how the story unfolds at that point. Satan leaves the presence of God, and he causes a lot of disaster in Job's life. Job's livestock are stolen. His servants are slaughtered. He has 10 kids, and they're having a party in this house, and this rogue windstorm just collapses the walls, and every single one of his children are killed. Now, how does Job respond to this tragedy? Look at this next verse. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground. And what's the next two words? In worship. And I know that many of you have experienced this. The most intense times of worship have often been when your heart was filled with pain. When you were really struggling, when you didn't know how you were going to make it, sometimes that's when our worship is the most intense and even the most authentic. He fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. We just sang a song based on these verses. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Even though God may give or take away, blessed be his name. That was what Job was saying. Now, if you have your Bibles open, you can look down to verse 22 because this is a really crucial statement about Job. It says this, and all this Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Job can't see what's happening on this upper stage. He knows nothing about the conversation that's taken place between God and Satan, but he knows this. He knows that God is not the author of evil and suffering in his life. And of course, that 
raises the inevitable question, well, if God's not the author of evil and suffering, where does it come from? The answer to that question has to do with the fact that God, in his wisdom, gave human beings free will, the ability to choose. Now, why did God give us free will? And the answer is this, because the greatest value in this universe is love. The greatest value in the universe is love, to love God, to love other people. And the only way that highest value of love can be realized is if people are free to love God or not love God, to love others or not love others. And God, knowing this, created a world in which he gave human beings the ability to choose. The problem, of course, is that Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, and with their disobedience, suffering and evil poured into our world. Now, there are two kinds of evil in the world in which we live, and one is called moral evil. And moral evil is this. It's the result of choices that human beings make that hurt other human beings. In fact, one theologian that I was reading this week says that he thinks about 95% of the suffering in the world is a result of sinful and selfish behavior. And here's an example. Have you ever seen pictures of people starving in Africa because of famines? We all have. The pictures of the little kids and their faces and their bloated bellies, and people say, well, where's God in all of this? You know, why does he allow children to suffer? Well, the truth of the matter is that we produce enough food on this planet to feed every man, woman, and child. But because of human selfishness and greed and corruption, people are starving when there actually is enough food to feed everyone. And here's another example. Look at the pain and suffering that takes place on a daily basis in the Middle East. We know about the refugee crisis. We know about the violence. And people say, well, why does this happen? Well, it's a result of moral evil. It's the choices that people make. Francis Schaeffer, the Christian theologian, called it man's inhumanity to man. And that's what we witness in the world all the time. And there's another kind of evil that we encounter. It's called natural evil. Things like earthquakes and floods and hurricanes and natural disasters. I remember just a few years ago, we were in Haiti following the devastating earthquake there. It killed over 200,000 people. And our team was there to rebuild a home for a pastor. And, and it was overwhelming to go through the streets of Port-au-Prince and to see the wreckage and to see the, the people suffering so greatly. But why does that happen? Well, it goes back to the story in Genesis. When Adam and Eve disobey God, natural evil enters the world. Look at this conversation that God has with Adam back in Genesis chapter 3. God says to Adam, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, Adam. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And this is the curse that fell, not just on Adam and Eve, but on all of creation. And we read about that curse in Romans chapter 8, where Paul says this, the Apostle Paul, we know that up to the present time, all of creation groans with pain, like the pain of childbirth. And what he's referring to is this, that the whole universe, the whole creation, is longing for the day when God will reverse the curse, the day when God will set things right. Now, this is often where people raise this question. Well, if it's true that God created people with free will, and if it's true that God made a world with a potential for evil and suffering to take place, why did he do it? Didn't he know that people would rebel against him? Have you ever encountered that question? I mean, why would God do something like that? Now, here's something that, that might be helpful. It's um, an analogy. If you're a parent this morning and you made a choice to bring a child into this world 
think about this. Did you realize when you were thinking about bringing a child into the world that they could suffer in this world? Well, of course. They could be injured. They could become ill. Their heart could be broken. They could experience all kinds of bad things because that's the world we live in. And yet at the same time as a parent bringing a child into the world, did you think about the fact that they could have a wonderful life? That they could know the God who made them, the God who loves them, that they could experience your love, that they could love other people? You see, I believe that that same kind of perspective applies to God because God knew from all eternity that people would rebel against him. And God also knew that people would choose to love him and to love each other. And with that in mind, God made our world. And this really helps us understand both the bad news and the good news of the gospel. Because the bad news is this, that like Adam and Eve, we've made a choice to disobey God. And that's led us down this path, away from his plan, away from his purpose. And we know that we have two enormous problems that we can't solve. The first is sin, and what's the second one? It's the consequence of sin. It's death. The Bible says what we deserve for our disobedience is to die and to be separated from God forever, and that's because God is holy and just. He can't deny his own character. And so we are in a helpless and hopeless situation, but the good news is God loves us. He created us so that we could know him and love him, and so God made a way for us to renew and restore our relationship with him. And that's what the story of redemption is about. God the Father sends God the Son to earth, and Jesus Christ comes and lives the life that we could never live. And then he allows himself to be arrested and beaten and hung on a cross. And on that cross, God is willing to put our sin on Jesus and punish him in our place. God is willing to exchange the life of his son for our life. And three days later, what happens? Jesus is raised to life. And God invites us through his son to come and have a new life. Jesus says, look, if you will trust me, if you will admit you're a sinner, if you'll believe that I died for your sins and rose from the dead, I'll give you a new life. But friends, let me ask you this. This new life that Jesus will give us, is it free from pain and suffering? Absolutely not. Because when you become a follower of Jesus, does he just take you out of the world? No, he leaves you here because he has a purpose for you. And that is the next point of light that helps us navigate through this world when it's really hard. Take a look at your outline. God is able to use evil and suffering to accomplish his purpose in your life and mine. I heard a story about this cowboy that wanted to get life insurance, and so he's talking to the insurance policy agent, and the agent says, well, sir, have you ever had any accidents? And he says, well, no, but there was a time that I was bitten by a rattlesnake and I got um, run over by a bull. And the agent says, well, don't you consider those accidents? And the cowboy said, well, no, they did it on purpose. If you're a believer this morning, everything that happens in your life happens according to God's purpose. This is a classic verse. It says, and we know, not we hope, not we suppose, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. And what is his purpose? Well, quite simply, his purpose is to make us like Jesus. And so God uses everything that happens in our lives, our successes, our mistakes, our sins, disaster, divorce, debt, the death of loved ones. God uses all of that to accomplish his purpose because he is sovereign. Now, how do we know that's true? When people say to me, Pastor Dudley, I, I just, I can't even begin to, to understand why this would happen or how God could bring good out of this. I just don't see it. And whenever I encounter that question, I ask people to do one thing, to look at the cross. 
Because there was a Friday when it looked completely dark. When they took the lifeless body of Jesus down from the cross, it looked like the story of redemption was over. But was it over, church? No, because Jesus was was raised from the dead. Why? Because God really is in charge. God rules and God overrules the affairs of men and nations. And when we struggle, when we, we just can't see any way that good could come out of a situation, God says, trust me. Look back to the cross. Remember that I did it in the life of my own son, and I can do it in your life too. Now, I want to just turn a, a corner and talk about this question. We know that the world is full of pain and trouble and suffering. How should we respond? How should we respond to the suffering? And I want to briefly point out several ways, and the first is this, and this is on your outline. Resist being bitter. Resist being bitter. Now, how can you do that, practically speaking? You don't just try really, really hard not to be bitter. Here's what you do. You pour out your heart to God. You know, we had a song, we talked about that this morning, that we could actually tell God everything that we're feeling, and we see that in the book of Job, because when Job has all this strategy unfold in his life, he actually curses the day he was born. He talks to God about his fear and his, his doubt and his pain. He just pours it out to God, and God actually commends Job. And God says this, and first he's talking about Job's friends. He says to his friends, you haven't been honest either with me or about me. Not the way my friend Job has. And church, here's why it's so important to be completely honest with God when you're struggling. Because if you don't, there's a bitterness that could grow in your heart and it will drive a wedge between you and God. I was talking with a man this week and he has a son who had a very close friend who was killed in a tragic accident. And his son, up until that point, had been a young man of faith. But right now, he is really struggling. It looks like he's walked away from his faith because he can't understand how God would allow this to happen. And that's a common story. There, there are so many times when people say, God, if you cared about me, why would you let this happen? God, if you cared about me, I've been praying for years and years, and you haven't done a thing, God. And what happens is that if we allow that that bitterness to grow in our hearts, it creates a rift between us and God. And what we need to remember is this, that God always acts in the best interest of his children. That even when we don't understand what God is doing, God says, you can trust me. And we see that so clearly in this book of Job because when you get to the end of the book, does God ever explain to Job the conversation that he has with Satan? Never. Job never knows what's happening on the upper stage, what's happening in heaven. But at the end of the story, God basically says to Job, here's the deal, Job. I'm God. You're not. Trust me anyway. And after 42 chapters, 42 chapters of Job talking to God and talking with his friends, that's the conclusion that Job reaches. That even though he doesn't understand, he can still trust God. Here's another way that we can respond to suffering that's really important. Receive comfort from others and give comfort to others. Look at this verse from 2 Corinthians. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Now notice how this works. Who comforts us in all our troubles, speaking of God comforting us, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. So when you're going through a really tough time and God pours comfort into your heart, does he want you just to experience that comfort? 
No, he wants you to do something with that comfort, not just experience it. What does he want you to do with that comfort in your heart? Yeah, share it with other people who are really going through a tough time. Because church, here's the deal. When you're going through a, a time of, of, of pain and distress, you really do need sympathy. Somebody who tries to come alongside and be with you and try to understand as best they can what you're going through. It's like the story about a guy who is suffering from the flu and he calls up the doctor and tries to get an appointment and he talks to the receptionist and she says, well, sir, you can't see the doctor for three weeks. He says, well, I could be dead by then. And she says, well, sir, if that happens, please have your wife call and cancel the appointment. (laughs) Not a lot of sympathy in that conversation. You know, the story of Job is so helpful to, to show us how we can comfort other people because if you know the story, when his three friends find out about what Job is going through, what do they do? They go to be with him. And they see Job from a distance, and they don't even recognize him because he's been through so much. And when they get there, they just sit in silence. Does anybody know how long they sit with Job? Seven days. Can you imagine that? Sitting there, not saying a word. Now, how do you think Job felt at that point? I think he felt a lot of comfort from his friends just being there with him. But then something happened. They opened their mouths. And here's the problem. They could have said comforting words. They could have said encouraging words. But you know what they tried to do? They tried to explain why all this was happening. And and the bottom line was this. Job, you must have done something really, really bad because God is really ticked off at you. I mean, your life is a mess. What you need to do is just, Job, fess up. Tell God you're sorry and maybe things will turn around. Problem is that they didn't know what was going on on the upper stage either and they had it completely wrong. Now, when we have the opportunity to come and sit with somebody who's going through a painful experience, here's what we need to remember. They don't need our explanations. They need our encouragement. They need us to be with them. And there's something else that takes place in this story, and I think many of us can relate to this. When, when life is really hard, and it could be your life, it could be that somebody you love is really going through a tough time or making bad choices, and you just see them going in a really dangerous and dis- disastrous direction, and your faith begins to falter. When that happens, you need people around you who have faith, who can who can guide you, who can help you through that desert of of doubt and discouragement because sometimes it even results in despair if we let it. And that's why this verse is so intriguing because Job says this, a despairing man should have the devotion of his friends even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Job is saying, my faith is beginning to falter and I'm so thankful I need the devotion of friends to hold me up. I need their faith to be strong for me. Now, here's another way that we can respond to suffering, and this is on your outline as well. Rely on the Lord. Rely on the Lord. I was reading about uh, one of the tsunamis that hit on the other side of the world, and these rescue workers were talking with survivors, and they said, well, how did you survive this huge storm? And the survivors said they had a very simple strategy. They tied themselves to the biggest tree they could find. Good strategy, isn't it, to survive a storm? And when I read that, I thought about the Apostle Paul. Because Paul was a guy who had all these storms come into his life. And the reason that he survived is because he tied himself to Jesus. This is a kind of a Reader's Digest 
version of the things that Paul suffered. This is in 2 Corinthians. He says this, Five times the Jews gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a whole day adrift at sea. I have traveled many weary miles. I have faced dangers from rivers, from robbers. I face danger in the cities, in the deserts, in the stormy seas. I have lived with weariness and pain and sleepless nights. And it just goes on and on. And you think, Paul, how did you keep going? And I know what he would say. Because I was tied to Jesus. And I could weather any storm. And Paul writes this in Philippians. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And that is such an important phrase, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. I was sharing with First Service a story about a time when one of my sons was playing high school basketball and their team was doing really, really well. They had a great season. They were one game away from the state championship. And to make a long story short, they lost the game. And so here I am, you know, I'm the dad and I'm thinking of a way that I can, can encourage my son, you know, what should I say, what should I not say? And so they're um, in the locker room, I'm waiting for him to come out. And so the whole team walks out together. And in that moment, as I looked at my son, I realized this, I'm an outsider. I'm not on the team. I mean, they got a club there. You could call it a suffering club. And they've been through this whole season together. They have practiced together. They've, they've won together and lost together and cried together and they get it in a way that I really can't because I haven't been through the same thing and I was thinking about this phrase the fellowship of sharing in Christ's sufferings because Paul suffered many things and the idea was this when he suffered emotionally he could better understand the emotional suffering of Christ when he suffered physically he could better understand what Jesus suffered for him and isn't that true for us I mean suffering can do that it can help us appreciate what Christ has done for us. In fact, suffering can push us close to Jesus. It can strengthen our relationship with him, but just the opposite can happen. Suffering can drive a wedge between us and God, a wedge between us and Jesus. And what we see in the book of, of Job is that when Job suffers the greatest, he clings to God. He holds on to God. And at the end of the story, this is what Job says, and he's talking to God. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And this statement by Job is what the whole story hinges on. Because when Job has this face-to-face -face encounter with God, everything changes. And friends, that's true for us. It is one thing to go through suffering and say, I know about God. It's a completely different thing to go through suffering and say, I know God. Because here's the reality. The better you know God, the more you will trust him. And that's why as your pastor, I'm always encouraging you to read the stories in the book. Understand the heart of God. Talk to God. Pour out your heart to God. Strengthen your relationship because realize this. As you do that, you're getting ready for the next storm. Because the better you know God, the more you will trust God. And it's interesting that, that Job says, I repent. The word repent means to have a change of mind, a change of heart. And now Job sees things from a different perspective. And it shaped everything in his life. And here's his, his perspective. I may not understand what God allows to come into my life, but I still trust God. And I believe he loves me. And for the rest of his life, that's how Job sees his life. And I want to ask you this morning, when you go through a difficult time, a really hard time, 
Have you come to that conclusion? Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that even though you don't understand why God has allowed certain things to come into your life or those that you love, do you still believe, I mean really believe, that he's in charge, that you can trust him, and that he really loves you? Because church, I believe that that's what God wants for each one of us. Well, let me point you to this last way to respond to suffering. And I hope this will encourage all of us this morning. It's the fourth thing on your outline. Remember that one day God will bring an end to suffering and pain. It's a great thing to remember, to hold on to, to be reminded of all the time. Here's another story. There was a fortune teller who studied the hand of a young man and told him, you will be poor and very unhappy until you are 37 years old. The young man said, well, after that, what will happen? Will I be rich and happy? The fortune teller said, no, you'll still be poor and, and unhappy, but you'll be used to it by then. I'm so glad in this world that can be such a mess that God doesn't say, hey, you'll get used to it. God doesn't say that. He says, you know what? A day is coming when I'm going to make everything right. A day is coming when I'm going to end the suffering of my children. And there is a beautiful passage, and I never tire of reading this. It's from the book of Revelation, the, the end of the story. Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Church, I hope that encourages you this morning. Between the services, I had about four or five conversations with people that were just telling me about really serious situations in their lives. And I encouraged them to go to the cross and pray. And I know as a pastor, personally and, and vocationally, that sometimes the pain in our lives can be overwhelming. And that's why we need God and that's why we need a church family as well. And I want to remind you this morning um, that a day is coming when there will be no more hurricanes, earthquakes, or natural disasters. A day is coming when there will be no more need for hospitals or police stations or doctors or nurses. A day is coming when God will keep his promise and he will wipe every tear from our eyes. But until that day comes, God wants us to do this. He wants us to live with hope. The hope that he can be trusted, absolutely trusted to keep his promises. God wants us to live with faith. He wants us to really believe that he is this, this sovereign sentinel that stands guard at the gate of our lives and only allows in that which he can use for his glory and for our good. And church, I believe that Jesus would say this to us if he were here. And in fact, he is here today. We're celebrating his presence with us as we celebrate communion. I believe Jesus would say these words to us. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. God, what a bold declaration Jesus made. And it's always intrigued me, Father, that he said that before he went to the cross because he knew what the outcome would be. He knew that he would lay down his life. He knew that you would raise him from the dead. He knew that we would be sitting here this morning looking back and remembering his sacrifice. But God, I know this. This isn't just a time to look back. It's a time to look ahead and to realize that one day you're gonna, 
You're going to redeem us, God. The pain, the suffering, the, the heartache is going to come to an end. But now, God, this day, you promise to be with us. You promise that you're for us. And I pray that as we celebrate communion, that in a very powerful way, God, in a very authentic way, we would sense a connection with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, I want to do this. We do this every time we celebrate communion. I want to read these verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And notice this, what Paul writes. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, like we're doing right now, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. We're looking back and we're also looking ahead. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. You ought to examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. And again, Paul is saying, look, you need to ask yourself the question, am I really a follower of Jesus Christ? Have I made that choice to, to embrace him as my Savior and as my Lord? Have I admitted to God that I'm a sinner? Do I believe that Jesus died for my sin and rose from the dead? Because that's what it means to be a Christian, to follow Jesus Christ. And I want you to know this too, church, that, that I realize on Sunday mornings that there may be people here who, who have never made that choice. They've never stepped across that line of faith. Every time we celebrate communion, there is an opportunity to do that. Today could be the day that you make the most important and the most courageous decision of your life to trust Jesus Christ. And that could happen right here, right now. And let me say this to, to those of you who are Christians, who are followers of Christ. Communion is an opportunity to receive God's grace to remember that, that God loves you like nobody else and that whatever you're facing in your life, God is with you and God is for you. And communion, church, reminds us that this, this following Jesus is not just a vertical, a vertical thing. It, it's horizontal. God has given us a church family. We celebrate communion together. And it is so encouraging for me as your pastor to see you Sunday after Sunday, come and receive this grace from God for each one of your lives. And so with that in mind, let me just ask you to bow your heads and, and pray with me this morning. God, I'm just so thankful for the privilege you give me of leading these communion times. And Lord, I know you want us to remember you, to remember your great love, to remember your sacrifice. And I know that the reason you want us to remember is so that we will love you more, we'll appreciate your sacrifice more, and Lord, I know it's also because you want us to sacrifice our lives to you and for you and for each other to accomplish your purpose in this world. And so God, in this, in this time, I just pray that if there's anything in our hearts that displeases you, God, if there's any sin that we need to confess, anything that's a barrier between us and, and you, God, I pray that right now in the quiet we would simply confess that and ask for your forgiveness. This morning for the one who may at this very moment sense your spirit tugging at their heart. Father, I pray that they would 
surrender their life to Jesus and simply in their own words say, God, I, I need you. I really need you. I know that I've, I've made some bad choices. God, I know I'm a sinner and I need a savior. I need Jesus. And I believe that he died for me and rose from the dead and I just, I want to follow him. I want a new life. God, I thank you for the life that you give us. And I pray that in these moments, right now, God, right here, that we would know the reality of your presence and your power. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Church, as the music begins to play, I want to ask you just to remain seated for a few minutes and think about God's grace. And I'm really...